2 Thessalonians 1.1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 verse 1. Now we request you brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself As being God, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness." In 2 Thessalonians, just as 1 Thessalonians, Paul the Apostle writes to the Thessalonian Christians, and according to Acts chapter 7, he went into the Jewish synagogue, and the church of Thessalonians, just like many of the early churches, had a mixture of Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in the same body. That's what's happening in Thessalonica, the city. And the missionaries who went there were Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and now they write follow-up letters in order to help the Christians there maintain their faith, encourage them in the faith, because though 
what they initially heard from the apostle was right and true, and they heard everything they needed to know, still, when the afflictions come, when the persecutions come, when false teachers come, it raises doubts in their mind. So he writes these letters to confirm their faith so that they not swerve here and there, but stay on the straight path of the true faith. Well, it says in verses 3 to 4 that they are maintaining this faith. They are maintaining faith. It's greatly enlarged. They love each other. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And their faith is growing greater and greater. Their love and faith are growing. But the problem that they face is in verse 4. These churches are experiencing persecutions and afflictions. Persecutions and afflictions. And perhaps he primarily has in mind persecutions from the Jewish people, some of the Jews who did not believe, who disbelieved and persecuted the new Jewish believers and even Gentile believers. They prevented their fellow Jews from believing, but they also prevented some Gentiles from hearing the truth. They did whatever it took to stop it. And this is the affliction and the persecution that they are experiencing. Now, when will this affliction or persecution be relieved? When will it stop? When will it be relieved? When will it stop? Well, if you take what is typically taught in modern Christianity or in modern evangelical Christianity, you're, you are taught that it will stop when Jesus suddenly appears with the rapture and takes the true Christians out of the way. Then there's going to be suffering and intense persecution. That's what will happen. It's not for the church now to suffer, they say. But it says in verse 4 that the church is suffering. Persecution, all your persecutions and afflictions. Not only does verse 4 say that the church is suffering now, but it also tells us in this passage when the suffering ends. When will it cease? When will it stop against the church of Jews and Gentiles? When will it stop? He continues in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. God's righteous judgment is that He afflicts us or He puts this um, tribulation upon us in order for us to come out, come forth as gold. We are to be purified of our sins, sanctified with holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is ordained by God for us in the church to experience. And when we come forth as gold, with all of our impurities uh, that have passed away or melted away, we will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. He does not mean we're saved by our works. He doesn't mean it that way. He means we evidence or show that forth by our afflictions for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of Christ, for the name of Christ, for the gospel of Christ. When we preach it and when we live it according to the way the Bible says, we will be afflicted, but that's a part of God's plan, to consider us worthy of His kingdom. Still, though, when will it end? When will it end? Will it end with the rapture as a distinct and different event from the coming of Christ? Or is the coming of Christ the only event that we should be hoping in and looking forward to for this relief? Verse 6. 
For after all, it is, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. He, he promises, or asserts here, that it's only just for God to afflict our afflictors. It's only just for God to punish those who persecute us. They are doing it wrongfully against us, and therefore God will punish them. It's only righteous, it's only just, it's only fair for God to do it against them because they did it against us. After all, do we not serve a righteous God? Right? He's a loving God, and He's a righteous God. And His righteousness will be manifested at a given time. When is that time? He says in verse 7, 7 to 10, when that time will be. To give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When? He says when. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It says right there in 7, when Christ is revealed from heaven, is he's talking about the second coming. He's not talking about rapture. And notice in verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. When he comes. We've already talked about the first coming of Christ. Now he's talking about the second coming of Christ. The first coming was for him to die on the cross and rise from the dead for our sins. The second coming will be to receive us eternally, to be with him, away from wicked people, away from afflictions and persecutions in this world, away from anything that would cause us pain and hardship and death. He's going to relieve us of all of that when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. That's the second coming of Christ. Therefore, it is the second coming of Christ that brings relief to the church. It's not the rapture of the church. It's the second coming of Christ. It's not the rapture as though the rapture is a distinct and different event or incident uh, apart from the second coming of Christ. There, there is in Scripture only two comings of Christ. His first coming and then His second coming. There's only these two. There's nothing in between. There's not a third coming or a fourth coming. Nothing like that. We only know of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, known as the return of Christ. So, when He returns, that's when we receive relief. And when He returns, what else happens? The wicked are punished. It, the wicked are punished because it says in verse 9, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Verse 8, Christ will deal out retribution or punishment to those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's when all of these things happen. When He returns, we are relieved and they are retributed. We, we receive relief from our persecutions and they receive their just penalty for the evil things they've done against us and us physically, but really they hate God and they take it out on us. So Christ will be glorified when he does all these things. Let's pick it up in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. When will this great apostasy occur? Will the great apostasy occur 
while we're on the earth or after we have left the earth? Correct? That's a, a valid question to ask. Because predominantly we hear today in Christianity that we're going to leave the earth and then there's going to be a huge or immense apostasy or falling away from the faith. What's the sequence of events according to this passage? And who are we going to see? Verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. What's the topic at hand? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. Right? The second coming. Verse 1 also. Our gathering together to Him. Well, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17... If we are alive, we will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the clouds, and thus we will always be with the Lord, right? So if the rapture is when we are gathered together with Christ, here he's also saying the coming of Christ and our gathering together to Him is the one and same event. Not a separate uh, event over a span separated by seven years or any number of years. It's the same event. We are gathered to Him when He comes, according to verse 1. That's the topic at hand. And why did He have to address it? Verse 2 says, That you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us. Because the Thessalonians had been hearing by a spirit, and by a spirit, probably a prophetic spirit, somebody who claimed to be a prophet and have the spirit of God or have the spirit of the future to be able to predict the future, came and told the Thessalonians, listen, this is the way it's going to be, and it's contrary to what the Apostle Paul told you. It's not the right sequence. Paul's sequence is not the right sequence. Our sequence is the right sequence. They had a prophetic spirit, they preached a message or they wrote a letter. And notice also, some of these probably pretended to be Paul. Because he says, as if from us. As if from us. At the end of this letter, 2 Thessalonians 3, 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way... I write. What's Paul doing there? He's assuring the Thessalonians that this letter has his endorsement. That it is a real letter from Paul the Apostle. A genuine letter from him. The contents of this letter are actually from Paul. So if somebody else says that Paul taught this or taught that, don't believe him. This is what Paul taught. Believe what's right here. Don't believe something as if from Paul. Believe exactly what Paul said, which is what we should do. We should always go back to Scripture and not listen to the theories, not listen to the speculations, not listen to the books and the movies. Listen to Scripture, because the Scripture is only from the Holy Spirit. And carefully read it, carefully study it, study it and read it line by line in context, not out of context. It's easy to take Scripture out of context. You wouldn't like it if somebody took you out of context, would you? Especially if it's on a weighty matter. You wouldn't want anybody to take you out of context. Well, how would God feel if people take God out of context? These are the words of God. So we have to be very careful 
on what we say. And here, there were plenty of people in Paul's time and after Paul's time for 2,000 years taking Scripture out of context. Now, what did they say? At the end of verse 2, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. It has come. The day of the Lord has come, and you Thessalonians missed out. You Thessalonians were not a part of it. You Thessalonians were not gathered together when Christ came. Christ came, and you missed it. Christ came, and you're lost. Christ came, and you're done for. God has no more plans for you. He's not going to save you. You are a part of all the wicked people. So they terrified the Thessalonians with that. Wouldn't you be terrified? The day of the Lord has come, but we weren't gathered together with Christ? That's what the false teachers were saying. Whether in the name of Paul or contrary to Paul, they were teaching falsely, contrary to what Paul had originally said and what he said in his first letter and now in this second letter. So he corrects it, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. What will not come? The second coming, verse 2, the day of the Lord. Or verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, that day of the Lord Jesus Christ, His return, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The apostasy, the falling away, this denial of the faith. An apostasy is typically when somebody says he adheres to the faith, he believes in the faith, and then walks away from it, and either completely walks away from it or starts to teach something contrary to what he initially said he believed. And so in either case, they are falling away or walking away from what they originally held. The, what was originally held is the truth. That's the assumption with apostasy. They initially believed it to be true, and then they walked away from it or began to deny it and teach other things. Well, the apostasy here does not seem to be just any apostasy, right? He says, the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Well, according to the view that says the rapture comes first, some people are going to miss it, and then there's going to be seven years or a certain number of years, then Christ returns. They say it's in that seven-year period that the great apostasy comes. The great apostasy comes after we are gathered together with Christ. But according to this passage, the apostasy comes first, then the day of the Lord comes, in which day we will be gathered together with Christ. You see the sequence? The apostasy is first, and then the coming of the Lord, and our gathering together with Him after that. Not only is the apostasy first, and the coming of the Lord after that, it says the man of lawlessness, son of destruction, is revealed. And what does it say about him? Verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He's going to claim to be the ultimate God. The superior God, the God of gods. He's going to claim deity for himself. And either he'll do it explicitly or he will do it implicitly. Either explicitly or implicitly. Implicitly would be, yes, yes, the Bible is true, but listen to me. 
But when they say that, when they say yes, yes, and then but, then you know you've got a problem. They often do it that way. Yes, the Bible is right. It says that. But listen to me. Read this book I wrote, and then you'll figure it out, and you'll have better understanding. Whenever it happens that way, that's the implicit denial of the true God. And he's placing himself, sitting himself in the seat of God when that would be blasphemy. So instead of worshiping God as he should be worshipped, worship him. And it says in 4, he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. In this case, he's being explicit. In the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is blasphemy. That's why he's called man of lawlessness and son of destruction. Destructive son, lawless man. That's what he is. Because he has the audacity to put himself in the place of God. So, verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? This is not new, Paul says. I told you about this before. Now I'm reiterating the point so that you have assurance and confidence, stability in your faith. Then verse 6. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed. What is restraining him? He says, you know that. You know what restrains him. But in his time, that restraint will be removed and he will be revealed. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, who is this restrainer? Because in verse 6, it says, What restrains him now? You know. And in verse 7, He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who is the he? Who is the restrainer? I think that there are two uh, possible viewpoints or two common viewpoints. One is that this is the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. Not that the Holy Spirit is completely removed from the world. That would be unheard, that's unheard of because the Holy Spirit is the omniscient, omnipresent God, omnipotent God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's no way to remove Him out of the world, but we do know that there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit is present in one situation and not present in another situation. That is present to fill somebody with, uh, with the, the power of God and with the gifts of God, but he's not in another situation. I think it's in that way that the Holy Spirit would be restraining lawlessness, but when God determines, when God wills, that lawlessness will be burst out, let open, let loose, then that would be when the Holy Spirit is withdrawing himself from the situation and then lawlessness prevails. I would think that that would be the way in which this means the Holy Spirit. And I, that for me, I think that that is the best way to understand it. However, another interpretation is to take the restrainer as being the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire, while it was strong until about A.D. 400, 400 to 500, and then it began to crumble, Eastern, Western Roman Empire began to crumble, um, that's when there was the rise of the papacy, the rise of Catholicism. 
And then um, in the 500s, 560 to 630, the time of Muhammad and the rise of Islam, which claimed also to be in accord with the Bible, to be in, in accord with the true God. Catholicism claims to be in accord with the Bible and the true God, and Islam also claims to be in accord with the Bible and with Jesus Christ. Yet they're not. It's plain that both of them are not. And throughout the Middle Ages, also known as the Dark Ages, why is it also called the Dark Ages? Because Catholicism and Islam dominated the world, dominated the Middle East, took over the Middle East, North Africa, parts of Europe, um, Asia, went into Asia, all the way into China and East Asia. That's how Islam conquered, and even Catholicism conquered in those ways. I think, though, the Holy Spirit is the better restrainer of these verses. Then verse 8. But who's going to take care of this lawlessness, this destruction, this apostasy? Who's going to end it? Isn't this similar to chapter 1? Afflictions and persecutions are happening. And who ends it? The Lord Jesus when He returns. And the same way here, who's going to end all of this apostasy and lawlessness? According to verse 8. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. That's the second coming. And who is he talking about? He's talking about the Lord. The Lord will slay and the Lord will use his words. That's the breath of his mouth, meaning his words, which are like a powerful two-edged sword. And by his brilliant appearance, because he's going to come in radiant light, brilliant light, he's going to slay all of the wicked people and even the, the wickedness of this great apostasy and man of lawlessness. Christ is going to take care of that. Christ is going to remove him out of the way. Verse 9. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. When the lawless one comes, when the apostasy comes, who is behind it all? Satan. Verse 9 says, Satan is behind it all, not God. And Satan will grant power, signs, and false wonders to be performed. Just like, you know, in the time of Egypt, when the magicians were able to replicate certain miracles that Moses performed, not all of them, but certain ones, and then that ceased, right? They were able to replicate the miracles to a, a point and then not after that point. In the same way, over the years and at this time, there will be this ability to perform these false wonders in order to do what? With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Many people will want to pursue their own wickedness. They will choose to believe lies they don't want to believe the love of the truth so as to be saved. And these are the people who are already unbelievers who will have judgment heaped upon them or more deception heaped upon them by Satan because they are a part of Satan's family. They are sons of the devil. And who ultimately is behind all of this? 
and will ensure that it's not out of control. Verse 11. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. God is behind it all because he sends delusion. He sends delusion to the unbelieving people so that they might continue to believe what is false. And why does God do that? To judge them, to punish them for refusing to believe the truth. And instead, they took pleasure in wickedness. I, I trust that we've seen from chapters 1 and 2 that church will be here, the church will be persecuted, the church will experience affliction, apostasy, and they will be in the midst of lawlessness until the second coming of Christ comes, who will punish the wicked people. He will relieve us and reward us. We'll always be with Him. We'll be gathered to be gathered together with him forever while the wicked experience eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That is the sequence of events. Those are the uh, interconnected events in relation to the return of Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.